Awesome. Hey, glad to have you uh, in the house of God this morning on the first Sunday in the month of June. God is up to good work here in the Northwest, and we're just happy to play a small part in a much broader plan that we believe God is unfolding uh, in this hour. And just to highlight uh, some of the things that uh, are happening uh, this week, obviously tomorrow night is our, our pursuit night, and on pursuit night starting at 6 p.m., we cater in food, we set up tables, and uh, we have a time of teaching and fellowship and worship. We provide free child care. And so if that's uh, something you'd love to participate in, uh, we're going to encourage you to join us the first and third Monday uh, of every month right here in the sanctuary uh, at, at uh, 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 Pursuit. And of course, on your way uh, out uh, this morning, we've got a, a table set up uh, where you can get information about Pursuit Preschool uh, and child care. You know, in, in our community, we really value the place that Christian education plays in the development of young people. And uh, I think maybe the greatest argument for Christian education is the state of the world that we live in today. And so uh, if you've got uh, uh, kids between the ages of zero and 13, you like more information, uh, make sure that you stop by the table and meet our director, Jessica, and connect with her for, for more information. Of course, we're excited about our quarterly women's event coming up here. In just a few days, we're gonna invite you out for that. That should be an incredible time. Uh, if you are a woman, you know, I was uh, for a period of time in my life, a man trapped in a woman's body uh, for about nine months. And then I was born. And so um, even though I don't qualify for the ladies event, if you are a lady who's also trapped in a lady's body, we'd love to have you for that event. So you don't get this anywhere else. This is just it's pursuit. Hey, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Psalms 45. Psalms 45. I want to give you two verses this morning that I want to take some time to dissect it and look at the way that it applies to uh, our life, uh, our outlook, our discipleship. You know, we're a big believer uh, in this environment, uh, a big believer in the daily transformation of ordinary Christians into the image and the likeness of God. And uh, I know sometimes in the charismatic environments, we love the moments of breakthrough. We love the extraordinary moments at an altar or the highlight at a conference. But what I found to be true in life is when you marry your breakthrough with your follow through, that's where transformation best happens. And so we want to create a house of breakthrough where people receive breakthrough in the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, there is liberty. But then we encourage people through the teaching of scripture to take the breakthrough they've got on Sunday, marry it to the follow through of their ordinary life on Monday, and in doing so, see God do a work of maturity and deepening and depth in their own lives. As Christians, it's important that not only do we grow wide, but that we grow deep and we plant roots and we allow the nutrients of God's spirit and God's word to help water our root system and in doing so develop something fruitful in and through uh, our lives. And, and I think this morning out of Psalms 45, you're going to see some things that I think will be helpful in the way that you understand God, in the way that you understand you, and then uh, also understand the world uh, around you. Now, the book of Psalms is, is a collection of songs and poetry and uh, statements and words and worship and breakthrough uh, that's written by a variance of, of authors, most prominently King David, 
but also Solomon, also Moses, also the sons of Korah, different collections of people that are all contributing to what essentially will become the hymn book for the nation of Israel. Now, some of you are old enough to remember growing up in a church that had a hymn book where you turn to page so-and-so to read the lyrics off of the page in order to sing along with the team. And I want you to think about the book of Psalms kind of in that context. These were the songs and the poems and the statements that the Hebrew children would read as they would go up to temple, as they would celebrate the feasts, as they would honor God. And today we're able to look at these, apply them to our life, and allow the Holy Spirit to draw some important conclusions for us and how we ought to operate in the world around us. Starting in verse 6 of Psalms 45, David declares this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Let me stop there for a moment this morning because David is using language that probably is unfamiliar to our political setting today. In, in our part of the world, we live in a mostly democratic system where things get voted on and it takes a majority in order to enact a law. But as David is writing as a king, speaking about the one who we worship, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he uses a political term to make a reference to the character of God. And he says this, in God's kingdom, the authority and the foundation that his personhood rests upon is connected to the scepter of his righteousness. And some of you might not know what a scepter looks like, but essentially it was an ornate staff, oftentimes overlaid with gold or silver or other precious gems and jewels. And it symbolized the sovereign authority of a king to make rulings, adjudications, and pass legislation for the loyal subjects that he was over. And I think sometimes because of the political system that we're in, we think that that we get a vote on God's sovereignty. Like somehow he was voted in and therefore can be voted out. Like somehow he is swayed by the ever-shifting popularity polls of culture. Like somehow if we can just get enough people to see things a little different, then maybe God will just change his word. I'll say, oops, I guess I didn't really mean what I wrote. And as David is talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the highest power, the highest principality, he says he rules with a scepter of righteousness. That righteousness is the foundation of who he is. And it is preeminent and prominent characteristic that he adjudicates with all clarity, all morality, all purity, that all of his laws and statements and statues are virtuous and true. And that this God that we serve ultimately sets the standard for every other living thing. Now, we live in a world today that thinks about freedom in the context of a non-constrained life. If you live in Snohomish, you're familiar with the train that runs through town, and you can hear it. If you live here long enough, certainly you'll have to wait for it a time or two as you're driving into church. But a train is only free as long as it's on its tracks. If that train were to get off its tracks 
We wouldn't call the community to celebrate it. We would call emergency personnel to deal with it. But we live in a culture today that says, if you truly love me in order to be truly myself, I'm going to live a life with no rules and no constraints because it's my body, my choice, my life, my prerogative, my sovereignty. And yet the Bible speaks differently about this reality. In fact, scripture says your life is not your own because you have been bought with a high price. We live as loyal subjects under the rulership and the kingship of Jesus Christ. All of his words are true. All of his promises are yes and amen. All of his statutes are pure. All of his thoughts towards us are right. Everything he does is without imperfection. He is ultimately what is true, what is good, and what is pure. And David, speaking about this king who is to come, the Messiah, he says, you will rule and a scepter of righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. The foundation of his rule and reign is that all of his ways are true. All of his judgments are right. All of his thoughts are pure. All of his perspectives are correct. And all of his commands are life. Hear me, friend. Scripture says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Friend, just because it seems right doesn't mean it is right. In fact, Scripture says that his mind is not our mind. His thoughts are, are not our thoughts. His ways are high above. That a man makes plans, but watch, the Lord directs his steps. And I think sometimes in culture, we've reimagined what the four living creatures cry out in Revelation 4. They don't cry out, love, love, love. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. Meaning this, that the love of God is what emanates from the holiness of God. And his holiness is not a force that pushes us off, but instead invites us in. In fact, that's why scripture says you can boldly approach the throne of grace in your time of need. You need grace when you make a mistake. You can boldly approach because God has more than enough mercy and more than enough grace and more than enough long suffering to factor in all of your stupidity and still put his love like a seal on your heart. And we boldly approach knowing that his holiness is not what pushes us away, but instead it's what invites us in. Friend, how often do we incentivize dysfunction and call it compassion? Hear me, unconditional affirmation and unconditional love are not the same thing. We have an unconditional love for God. We have an unconditional commitment to scripture and we operate with an unconditional kindness to people around me, which means this, especially in light of the month that we're in, let me say this. If you're gay, you have a seat at my table. If you're trans, you have a seat at my table. If you're bi, you can have a seat at my table. If you're an addict, you can have a seat at my table. If you're rich, poor, angry, happy, Democrat, Republican, black, white, you can have a seat at my table. But here is the rule. How you identify is not the guest of honor Jesus is. Because identity is not what I choose. Identity is not what I choose as a result of my abuse. Identity is what I receive as a result of my relationship with God. And friend, you don't get to choose your temptations, but you get to choose your response. 
And I think sometimes, especially in religious communities, we're drawn to extremes on either end of the spectrum. You hear me teach on this a lot. And I think there's one extreme in our culture that just says, well, I'm just going to love and be kind and do whatever it looks like. And for me, that looks like unconditional affirmation of everybody's brokenness because I need to be liked by people who don't share my values. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who are so angry at others who sin differently than them. And so they're always preaching about how angry God is and how angry they are. And can I tell you, when you teach the whole counsel of scripture, what you find is that there's truth in the tension. There's truth in the middle. God isn't mad at you. He's madly in love with you. It is the kindness and goodness of God that still today draws men unto repentance. And at the same time, yes, God calls us to a higher standard by which he irons out the works of the flesh, works in the ministry of the spirit, and in doing so, daily transforms us into his image and into his likeness. You know, we believe here in progressive sanctification, which means this, day by day, God is working a sanctifying work in my life and in my heart. And if you don't believe in progressive sanctification, just have kids. <laughs> and what you'll see is it's a day in, day out journey of maturity, development, wholeness, perspective, spirituality, and you begin to see, oh, we are children of God. And daily I enter into a progressive work of sanctification by which Monday I'll look a little more like him than I did on Sunday, and Tuesday I'll look a little bit more like him than I did on Monday, and every day is a fresh opportunity for God to fine-tune another area in my life. In fact, even in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, also in Matthew 10, also in Mark 16, Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, go reach the nations, go make disciples. Then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and, and, and the Holy Ghost, and then teach them to obey the things that I have commanded you. Notice where the teaching them to obey follows in that order. Which means this, you don't got to clean yourself up to come to church. You don't got to clean yourself up in order to serve in a ministry. You don't got to clean yourself up in order to be a member here at Pursuit. You've just got to commit to a process by which God and his servants teach you to obey everything that he's commanded of you. And so when we gather here in church community, we worship not our identity, but who Christ says we are. And any identity in your life that comes before the word Christian actually reveals the true idol you serve. I'm a conservative Christian. Sounds like you worship politics. I'm a gay Christian. Sounds like you worship your sexuality. For us, we submit our proclivity to self-identify to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he engages us in daily transformative work. If God did everything he needed to do in your heart on the day that you got saved, your body would explode. <laughs> it would. And so what God does is he takes a humble invitation to plant a seed of the gospel that is watered through your obedience, that if you tend to it for the course of your life will grow into a tree that bears fruit both in season and out of season. But we want bailouts, not process. We want to hit the jackpot instead of showing up for work. We want a moment at an altar to fix all of our problems. And can I tell you, you didn't get into all of your problems overnight and you probably won't get out of them overnight either. It'll probably happen through daily transformative work by which you submit your desires, your temptations, and your carnality to the reality of a risen Savior.
God loves you enough. He'll take you just as you are. He loves you too much to leave you the same. And as we enter into this relationship with God, we allow him to do his best work in our lives. Let me say something without, without you getting too offended, but I think maybe sometimes, just, just maybe, just let me submit it to you. I might be wrong. But I think sometimes when we think about sexual immorality, we have given a pass to heterosexual immorality and gotten really angry at homosexual immorality. And can I tell you, when scripture talks about the sexually immoral, it's covering both camps. And so when we teach the whole counsel of scripture, it's not about getting angry at people who sin differently than us, but it is recognizing that there are things that God establishes in his law and in his order that as members of his kingdom and those who are submitted to his lordship come into alignment with. See, this is not a choose your own adventure faith. This is not like a water paint by numbers, your imaginary theology faith. This is not like God needing to come apologize to you because he just watched a, a, a news special and realized that his word has been wrong for 6,000 years. That's not the God that we serve. It's an inherited faith. It came down from our forefathers. It's been passed down to us. And we contend for the gospel in which we have received in the midst of a culture that is desperately trying to change God's word. Now watch. When motivated by the need for culture's acceptance, we often sacrifice the scepter of his kingdom, which is righteousness, for the applause of the world, which is carnality. Watch what Paul says in Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and it is peace. Friend, this isn't a matter of politics. It's a matter of life and death. You can't afford to set your mind on things of the flesh because your life gravitates in the direction of your strongest thought. And Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, be careful what you set your mind on because it's the carnal mind that leads to death. In 1 John and in chapter 2, the apostle John says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Friend, the world is passing away. This place is only temporary. My approval and validation doesn't come from the comment section, it comes from Christ. We are not here for the approval of the world or the popularity of culture. We have been born from above and my authority comes from that place. When you don't have righteousness, you don't have authority. And when you don't have authority, it doesn't matter what else you have. When Jesus taught in the temple, the Bible says the Pharisees and Sadducees were confounded that this man taught with such authority. I, I think sometimes in, in charismatic environments, and I can critique them because we are one, but I think sometimes in charismatic environments, we have substituted authority for volume and we've called it presence. And the way that I see Jesus operate in the New Testament is that at one word, demons go. 
At one word, bodies are healed. At one word, things begin to shift in a city and in a region. And so when we begin to understand the authority that we have, friends, Jesus tells his disciples in the same way that I was sent, so I send you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and now I give it to you. Go and do, not watch, do the work of the ministry in every sphere of influence that you find. Friend, you're not called to full-time ministry. You're called to full-time Christianity. And full-time Christianity looks like being a living witness and having a living word wherever you go. And when you begin to understand, I am not born from below, I am born from above, it gives you a God-sized confidence and boldness to be everything he says you are and nothing he says you aren't. As we begin to think about the authority that we've got, we understand it comes from the scepter of his righteousness, the foundation of who he is. And Jesus says this, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. I like something Dr. Benj says. He says either scripture will be the lens through which you view the world, or the world will be the lens through which you view scripture. The choice is yours. Friend, hear me this morning. Theology birthed from compassion is dangerous. Compassion birthed from theology is Christian. That means that the standard bearer for my life and for your life is not whatever moral quandary you find yourself in in this temporary cultural moment. Every word from God is true. And when we read scripture, we don't read it as a window into the life of somebody else, but a mirror into the life of ourselves. And we understand that his word is sharper, watch, than any two-edged sword. It separates bone and marrow, which means God operates as a surgeon doing work on our heart as we apply the written word to our living life. And I think for us, it's so important that we read culture through lens of scripture instead of allowing the ever-shifting moment we're in to cause us to redefine what God has said. Friend, language is a part of culture. Watch, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are carried off into Babylonian captivity, one of the first lessons and laws that Nebuchadnezzar passes for the nation is that you can no longer speak Hebrew. But you'll have to speak the language of those who have conquered you. Language is a building block for culture. We live in a world that is constantly changing the definitions of what God has already defined in his word. And so the church oftentimes finds itself playing catch up with the world, trying to keep up with every new definition and every new identity and every new reality. And we gotta be careful in the way that we frame our language here in this church, that what I say carries authority, what you say carries authority because it is rooted and founded on the rock that is higher than us. And so because we are anchored above, not anchored below, that means we have stability. It means we have peace. It means we have foundational truth. It means we can operate as unashamed ambassadors of Christ because I'm not connected to the ever-shifting politically popular winds of the world around me. And some people spend so much time and energy and they get exhausted trying to play catch up 
with what the world is doing. And God hasn't called us as a subculture, but instead as a counterculture, which means my theology is not birthed from my compassion. No, I have compassion, but my theology and my compassion, it's birthed from scripture. So how I interact with the world around me is not rooted in the personal narrative of the person standing in front of me, but instead the corporate narrative of God's inspired word breathed by his spirit written to us. For Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is God breathed, not just the ones you like, not just the ones that affirm your own wokeness. No, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for things like encouragement and admonishment and correction and development. And so we take the breathed word and when God's word becomes a tool in your life and a weapon in your mouth, it causes you to recognize the authority that you actually have. Playing catch up with the world around us. Let me show you a picture this morning. I think it helps describe the cultural moment we're in. It'll help give you some context for where we're at. Person, I wanna do X. Church, okay, you're free to do it. But you think X is wrong. Yep, because you wanna control me. No, you're, you're literally free to do what you want. But you think X is wrong. Yes, but, but only because I want your ultimate good. But I wanna do X. Well, you're free to do it, but I want you to say that X is good. I cannot say that. Why do you hate me? The Bible says this, woe to those or warning to those who call evil good and good evil. But I want you to affirm the goodness and the virtue of my decision-making process. I want you to affirm my outcomes. And can I tell you, friend, we can hold on to an unconditional allegiance to who God is and what he says. And at the same time, unconditionally love and be kind to people in the midst of their journey. But I refuse to affirm an outcome that's not rooted in scripture. And regardless of what you call me, even if you think I hate you, I'm going to let God be true and every man a liar. I can affirm who you are without agreeing with what you do because my allegiance is to the rock that is higher than I. In Isaiah, it says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Watch what David says in verse seven of Psalms 45, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you, watch, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The oil of gladness, the anointing for joy. It's pretty common in that era for shepherds to anoint the heads of their sheep. Because when the head of a sheep was anointed, when they got stuck between a rock and a hard place, the shepherd could more easily pull them out. When the sheep would stick his head in a briar patch and get all sorts of thorns in his head and in his hair, it was always easy, easier for the shepherd to take those thorns out because his head had already been anointed with oil. And yet David says in Psalms 45 that your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Friend, we need the oil of gladness in a culture of madness. 
It's an anointing that comes from the Lord that causes protection and healing to be your portion as you walk through this life. Now, you can't afford to stay sad, mad, depressed, anxious, angry, isolated. There is an anointing available to you today that breaks off the spirit of the age and places inside you the spirit of the living God. The first message that Jesus ever publicly preaches, he quotes Isaiah 61. You find it in Luke 4. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 61 says that God will give us the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. David says it this way, even when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, you make a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Watch, you anoint my head with oil. Anointing in your life isn't for the good times, it's for the bad times. It's not for when everything in life is perfect, it's for when everything in life is terrible. You're feeling like I'm in a valley, I'm in front of people who oppose me, I'm surrounded by people who don't understand me. And in those times, it's important to remind your spirit that you have received an anointing that doesn't come from the world, therefore the world can't take it, it comes from the Lord. And it's an anointing that causes a gladness and a joy in your heart, that causes you to have the right perspective in every sphere of life. That instead of drowning in doubt and anxiety and stress, you can declare what Paul says for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And where does this joy come from? In 1 Chronicles 16, speaking of the tabernacle, scripture says this, honor and majesty are before him. Therefore, strength and gladness are in his place. Friend, joy is a form of resistance. That's why the scripture says in Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, joy is actually a weapon in this season for your life. It doesn't always manifest as a happy feeling because joy is an inside job before it's ever an outside job. No, joy is a resetting of your spirit. It's a recalibration of your soul. It's a realigning with what God has said to be true about your life. Can I just submit something to you this morning? You can have joy in the valley of the shadow. You can have joy in the presence of your enemies. You can have joy in the midst of your wilderness. You can have joy in the midst of that difficult relational season. You can have joy in the midst of a job change. You can have joy because it looks like a peace that comes from God where you you know my account has already been settled, my story has already been finished, and it ends better than it started. No, we've got a joy that the world can't take. In Psalm 16 and verse 11, David says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In James 1, the brother of Jesus, James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word, pure joy, literally translates to a Greek term, meaning this, joy that comes from grace. Let me give you a key this morning. This is why we worship the way we do. 
This is why we get excited in worship. We come alive as we praise and we give honor to the Lord. Scripture says, I was glad when they told me, come unto the house of the Lord. Because joy comes from having the right perspective of where you would be without grace. Oh no, grace was the secret ingredient in your life. No, grace was what has made all of the difference in your life. When you were in the miry clay, grace lifted you up. When you should have stayed, stayed sick and stayed broke and stayed depressed, no, it was grace that lifted you up. When the world should have taken you out, it was grace that lifted you up. When abuse tried to define your life, it was grace that lifted you up. And all of a sudden, even in the midst of a difficult season, when you begin to reflect on how good God has been to you, even in the midst of the valley of weeping, you can have a joy that the world can't take. Come on, we have